2023 has begun, and I want to ask you guys a question as we go into today's sermon. How many of you, okay, really, like honestly, you really want to experience God's wondrous deeds? If that's you, would you mind raising your hands? If you really want to experience God's wondrous deeds, okay, it looks like maybe 30% of you, and the rest, we're just okay where we are. We don't need God's wondrous deeds. Um, but for those of you who raised your hands and those who didn't, I absolutely believe that you mean it. I actually honestly believe that you really want to experience God's wonderful deeds. You want to see God do some powerful and amazing things. But here's the follow-up question. What are you willing to do to experience it? What steps are you willing to take in order to see God move in wondrous ways? What kind of obedience do you want to have so that when God is about to open up something amazing, that you're right there, positioned yourself because you placed yourself in humble obedience to the Lord? What are you willing to do to experience it? Now, when I look at Scripture, and I believe it with all my heart, that God wants to perform His mighty deeds in us and through us continuously. I believe He wants to reveal Himself in such powerful ways, not only to us, but to those around us, and hopefully through us. But are we willing? Are we willing to take the necessary steps to see it happen? That's what we'll be looking at today as we go into Psalm chapter 9. Okay, so let's take out our Bibles, and I always encourage you guys to bring a Bible. I know most of us use a phone, but if you have it on your phone, bring out a pen and a journal, and just underline as you read, circle things that stand out to you, so that you can continue to study God's Word on your own. Okay, so Psalm chapter 9. I will recount your wonderful deeds. This is the subtitle in the ESV. You may be reading a different version, you may have a different subtitle, but I will recount your wonderful deeds. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. So this is a song that David has given to the choir master. This is a song that, yes, can be sung individually, but is to be sung corporately. The choir master is to lead the choir in this song of Muth Laban. Now, scholars are not sure what that exactly means. Some think it means a tune, uh, in the likeness of a tune that they're familiar with. So there's a certain beat. <laughs> And this was sing that way. Or it could mean a song of the, the death of a son. And some, think, some people, some scholars believe it may be talking about Goliath's defeat. So David's singing a song of praise about Goliath's defeat. So there's speculation. They're not really sure. But one thing is for sure, the congregation of Israel, the people of God, are to sing this song. And here it goes. Verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those 
who seek you. The word of God to us today. Praise be to the Lord. Please take a moment to look at that yourself. And I want you to, uh, maybe if you can, underline or just note phrases or words that are repeated. And oftentimes when we read scripture and you see a phrase or a word repeated, it's because the author is trying to emphasize it. It's something that we really should pay attention to. So take some time, just look over this passage again and see those things which are repeated for emphasis. One of the things you'll see, of course, is the I will, right? David begins this psalm with the repetition of I will, I will, I will, I will. In the Hebrew language, this I will phrase is in the imperfect type, which means it is an ongoing, continuous action that is not yet completed. So as David is writing this, the song, what he is declaring is this, my past, my present, and my future, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. You know, as we were worshiping the Lord today right now, did you give thanks to the Lord with all your heart? Or were you just singing the lyrics on the overhead? David said, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will recount his wondrous deeds, his wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, most holy high, one who is most holy and high. And so what David is saying is, this is what I will do, no matter what circumstance I may be in. No matter what hardships I may face, no matter what enemies may come against me, I will. And what happens as David declares this, he's actually setting a principle before us of what a blessed life is. Remember last week, Pastor Dave, preaching from Psalm 1, talked about what a blessed life is. Right? Those who meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. And on its law, he does not depart. Right? We, we, we read that last week. And this week, we are continuing on that theme in a sense. A blessed life as a follower of Christ is to be able to say, I give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I remember, I recount your wonderful deeds. I'm glad and exalt you. I sing praises to you. So this is something that David does. And what happens is, what does repetition do? Some people say practice makes perfect. No, actually practice makes permanence. And as David continues to do this in the past, in the present, in the future, it establishes a foundation for, on which he builds his life. It's permanent in him now that this is how he lives his life and he's blessed. So we look at this and what is it that David is specifically giving thanks for? What is it specifically that David is recounting? What is David explicitly being glad about? And as you read it, there was a phrase that was repeated again. We see it as God who is enthroned. God enthroned. God eternally enthroned. And what David is saying is the reason I can give thanks, the reason I can exalt is because I know that God is on his throne and he reigns forever. He's sovereign. I know that. I know his name. And so now we think about David and his exaltation. And we have to ask ourselves as we read the Psalms, do we know this God? Do we trust and really believe this God who is enthroned forever? Or is he a God in our pocket or in a small box or in the corner of mosaic? Do you know this God who is enthroned forever? Now here's the thing. As we continue to unpackage Psalm 9, what we discover, at least in these 10 verses, 
is that the enthronement of God means two things here. From verse 3 to 6, the enthronement of God means this, that he is able to give righteous judgment. We heard that word phrase, judge, judge, at least three times. He's able to turn back the wicked enemies of David. He's able to thwart and wipe out the wicked. But now here's the thing. It's not because just it's David, but David says, my just cause. What David is saying is, God, as I sought after you, as I lived for you, when my enemies came, you defeated them. You're victorious over them. You wiped them out. Not just because I'm David, but because I was living for your just cause. Now, when you think about this, God being enthroned, able to wipe out his enemies, it presents to us two glorious truths. And like one glorious truth and one horrific truth. The glorious truth is this. If you and I, if we are submitted to Christ, if we put our trust in him, we follow after him as, a, as our Lord and Savior, then God is for us. If we are for God, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He is more than able to give us victory over our enemies. So that's the glorious truth. But there's also a horrific truth to this. If you are not for God, if you are living for sin and for your own ways, be assured that God is more than able to judge you, to judge the wicked, to wipe out your name forever because he is enthroned as the righteous judge. So it is a glorifying truth, but it's also a horrific truth where we should tremble if we're not for God. And this is what David is saying. David is able to give thanks because David is submitted to God. And in his submission to God, God gives him victory and judges David's enemies. That's one thing about the, the enthronement of God. The second thing about the enthronement of God is what we read from verse 7 to 10. Not only is he able to righteously judge against the wicked, but he also has the strong hand, the stronghold to uphold those who are oppressed, to those who are beaten down by the wicked, those who are being chased by the unrighteous. God is able to not only uphold them, but he will never abandon them. Why? Because David knows his name. Now, when we say name, we think like just the name Doug or the name Jesus. That's not what that phrase means in the Hebrew. When you say his name, what you're saying is his character, his being. David's saying, I know your name. Those who know your name, put their trust in you. I know not just the name Yahweh, but I know what you're about. I know your power. I know your provision. I know your protection. And I know that you will never forsake me. That's why I put my trust in you. And David is able to exalt God because God is his stronghold in times of trouble. Now, some of you may say you've had times of troubles, and I don't doubt you. You've gone through times of trouble. But this word, trouble, is not like I got a cold or I'm having some financial difficulties, or you know, something is going on with my relationship. That's not what this word in times of trouble means. This word in the Hebrew means catastrophic, like the end of your life kind of troubles. And David says, you're my stronghold even at the end of my life. You are able to uphold me. You're able to keep me strong. That's why I give thanks with all my heart. That's why I recount your wonderful deeds. That's why all this, he goes on to say that. So, again, that comes back to us. Do we know this God who is victorious over our enemies, but also strong enough to uphold us in all our times of trouble? Do we know him? Now, let's think about for a second about David. How does David know this? 
How does David know that this is true? How do we know that he's not just spouting out a bunch of theology, a bunch of good doctrine? I mean, it is good doctrine. It is good theology. But David is not speaking from what he learned from somebody else. He's speaking from his own personal experience. There's a vast difference between hearing about Jesus from somebody else and knowing his name because of that and actually have walked with Christ and know him, know his name by personal experience. So let's look at David's life a little bit. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's a young shepherd boy. His father says, bring some food to your brothers. So he goes down to see his older brothers and, who are enlisted in the army of Israel. And he gets to, the, to, the, to the, the area and he realizes that the armies of Israel are all lined up for battle. They have the whole regalia, the armor, but they're all shaking, they're quivering in fear. Because across the battlefield is the Philistine army, and in their front is Goliath, their nine-foot champion, who's taunting the Israelites, come out and fight me. And what's David's response? I will kill that uncircumcised Philistine. I will kill him. And the people start to hear. And so David is brought before King Saul, the king of Israel. And King Saul looks at him and goes, you cannot defeat him. You're just a boy. You know, many times when we live our faith in Christ, we really want to live it out. So many people will say, you can't do it. So many people, even yourself, will talk you down. But David refused to let Saul say that. So King Saul said, you're just a boy. That guy, Goliath, he's been a fighter since his youth. You have no chance. And you know what David does at that moment? He again recounts. He remembers. He goes, when I was younger, a lion came out and a bear had come out and taken my dad's sheep. I went after it and I killed that lion and I killed that bear. And he says this, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver that uncircumcised Philistine into my hands. You see, I know the Lord. And he is more than able to defeat this Goliath. You know, can you imagine? Here goes the little David out with a little sling, a leather strap, and a rock against this fully armored nine feet tall giant. The rest of the armies of Israel are probably thinking, man, you are doing a risky thing. You are doing a danger. This is life-threatening. And David is probably saying, no, actually the one that's in danger is Goliath, not me. Because you're standing against God. And so he goes out there, knocks him in the head, Guy falls down, cuts off his head, picks up his head, right? Goliath, come against him with sword and spear. And David said, I come against you in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, whose armies you have defied. You see, David knows this. It's not his might. It's not his power. It's the spirit of the Lord. It's the name of the Lord that's given me victory. And that's why David says this, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Because it wasn't me, it was God. I will recount his wonderful deeds. And this is what God is inviting us to do as well. To live into this kind of courageous faith. Into the steadfast obedience in the Lord. But here's the thing. David doesn't just know victory. He also knows oppression. He knows what it feels like to be chased. So after this event, you, you, you guys know the story, right? The people of Israel hear about this miraculous event. And as they come back into, you know, the, the, the capital, the, the women come out and they're singing, cling, cling, cling. They're singing, they're going, Saul has slain his thousand, but David, his 10,000. Hmm? King Saul gets jealous. 
He's afraid that David's going to dethrone him. And so he begins to chase David. Some say for like 13 years. The most powerful man in Israel is chasing a shepherd boy. David knows what it feels like to be oppressed. To be chased. But because he knows the name of the Lord, he knows that the Lord is his stronghold. His help in times of trouble. In fact, in one chapter, David and his men are hiding in the way back of a cave. King Saul goes, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. True story. He goes into the cave. He doesn't know that David's back there. And David's men goes, now's your chance. Go kill Saul. You don't have to run no more. And now you could become king. And David walks over. And there's Saul relieving himself. And David quietly snoops over like a ninja and cuts the cloak, edge of the cloak off and just comes back. And even doing that, he felt guilty. He felt convicted. He said, I dare not touch the Lord's anointed. You see, because he knows the Lord, he says, I don't have to try to make it happen by my own strength and my own power. God is faithful. He's called me to be a king. That he will make me a king. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. David became the king of Israel. You see, that's why David could say, you are my stronghold in times of trouble. Because he actually experienced God in those times of trouble. What about you and I? What about you and I? Who is God to us? What is God's name to us? Who is God in our, in our midst? It's because David had experienced God firsthand that he was able to see these wonderful deeds of the Lord. Now, think about all of Scripture. Don't we see that in Scripture that those who step forward or those who step out, even though it's risky, it's costly, it's dangerous, that it's when they do this that they actually experience the wondrous works of God. Isn't it true? So if you want to look at a pattern, you'll see in Scripture, Abraham, what did he have to do? He had to leave his mother and father's household to an unknown land. He had to step out in faith, in obedience, and he became the father of nations. What about Moses? What did he have to do? He had to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. And the whole time he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. But it's because he obeyed and he took that step of risky faith that he got to see what? The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. What about Esther? Beautiful Esther. What does she have to do? Man, if I go talk to King Xerxes without being invited, I could be executed. She had to take risky faith. And she did. She saw the wonderful deeds of God, the deliverance of the people of Israel. What about Daniel? Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. What did they do? It wasn't necessarily that they stepped out in faith, but they stood fast in obedience. I'm not going to bow down to your idols of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. The three of them are thrown into the fire, and Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. And what do they experience? The wonderful deeds of God. Peter. What, was, what happened to Peter? Storm. Oh my gosh, is that Jesus? Jesus it is I. Lord, call me to come to you, and I'll come. Come. And what does Peter do? He had to step into the storm. And he walks on water. We see that there is, at least biblically, we see there is a cost to experiencing the wonders of God. There is a risk. There is a step of faith, of obedience you have to take if you really want to experience the wonderful deeds of God. Let me give you one more. What about the four friends who had the paralytic? What did they have to do? They literally had to step over and above and make a hole in the roof and lower their friend. And Jesus says, says he saw their faith. And he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. 
It requires a sacrifice. It requires a stepping of faith. It requires an affirm obedience to see and to experience the wonders of God. Now, here's the thing. We, I think we know this. But there's a danger for us who are Christians, especially in Bergen County. And as I was praying and preparing for today's message, the Lord just said to me this chapter, Acts 9. Look at Acts 9. So I said, okay. So I went there, and this is what he showed me. Acts 9, verse 10. We have the passage up here. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Everyone say, here I am, Lord. Okay, you said it. Now we see Ananias is actually a genuine follower of Christ. He's a disciple. And God speaks to, Jesus speaks to him, Ananias. And Ananias responds, here I am, Lord. He knows. He's not talking to some stranger. He's talking to the Lord. And look what God says to him. The Lord Jesus said to him, rise and go to Straight Street called, uh, to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Very clear instructions. Very clear command. I mean, so deeply prophetic, like Straight Street, a, man, a house, Judas's house, a man named Saul. Very clear. And let's look at Ananias' response. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What is Ananias saying? Wait, wait, what? Are you sure? Like, Lord and but don't go together. Like, is this safe? Wait, are, are you sure you're doing the right thing, God? It's almost like Ananias forgot that he's talking to the Lord. And now what is he doing? He's elevating himself as Lord. I don't, I don't think I should go. This guy's dangerous. It's too risky. And in a very real sense, Ananias is like us, isn't he? In a very real sense, he's like me. And then God begins to continue to speak to him. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Do you think Ananias had any idea that he was going to pray for one of the most influential men of all time. Do you think he had any idea he was a key in that? You see, here is the danger for us Christians who live in Bergen County. This is the great temptation. I don't think it's apostasy, like, you know, reneging our faith in Christ. If you are really saved and God has saved you, you are a born-again Christian, to me, it's impossible that you lose your salvation. It's impossible. I don't see that biblically accurate. And I don't even think the greatest danger for a Christian is to live in outright sin, right? I don't know how many Christians there are that are going, I like to live in outright sin, and I'm a Christian. I don't see too many of that. But this is our great temptation, our great danger, is that we settle and be comfortable in our passive, in our righteousness. We become comfortably passive in our righteousness, and we willfully ignorant of our obedience to the Lord. 
We are comfortably passive in our righteousness and we're willfully ignorant of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we do this. We go to church and we be a good moral person and we're safe and that's enough. But intentionally asking the Lord and submitting to the Lord's will each and every moment of the day to go and tell my family or my coworkers or the others around me or my friends about Christ, no, that's, that's too scary. To go up to that person and say, hey, you want to grab a, a bite to eat? Because the Lord put some kind of uh, impression upon your heart. You go, no, no, I can't do that. To go and pray and to lay hands on someone who's sick? Ah, I don't know. That's, not, that's, just, that's just not me. To cast out demons? To give generously to those who are in need, even though you may be going through some financial difficulties. To, to love your enemies. To speak truth to your brother or your sister who is in sin, but you speak it, the truth in love. Oh, I, I can't do that. I don't want to offend anybody. To go and make disciples. And we say, that's like for real, like super Christians. That's for like people in the Bible. That's for like maybe Pastor Dave, but not for me. And so what happens is we become very comfortable in our churchianity. And we're very comfortable in just our morality. What would have happened if Ananias said, I'm good. I'm okay with where I'm at. When God said, go to, go to the street called straight. And, and if Ananias says, no, no, I'm good. You know what would have happened? He would have lived, but he wouldn't have life. And he would have missed out on this wonderful thing that God wanted to show to him. And not only that, but be part of this glorious, redemptive history of God. You see, I, I know what this feels like because I've experienced this. Like whether I've been in a coffee shop or whether I've been in the bus, and I get this sense from the Holy Spirit, like, go talk to that person. I'm like, no, 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 that's weird. I can't do it, no. And I, and I keep saying no, 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 and then I no longer hear his voice. Oh, that's, that's just too scary. That's just too much. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it, and it becomes this place where we're going, God, it's too scary. And so because we don't want to be scared and we want to be comfortable, we actually start to silence and we'll drown out God's voice with our other activities. And then we look at ourselves and we wonder why our faith, our Christian life is so boring. It's so not life-giving. It feels like it's just so ritualistic Sunday attendance. This commentator, Heinrich Meyer, said this, Men and women complain of their little faith. In other words, that their faith is, is, is kind of like so mediocre, so, nice, so, so not life-giving. And he says this, The remedy is in their own hands. Let them set themselves to know God. But for all this, you must take time. You must make time. You cannot know a friend from hurried interviews, much less God. You must steep yourself in deep, long thoughts of his nearness and his love. David is not able to slay Goliath just all of a sudden. It's because he's been playing the harp and singing to God and speaking to God, meditating on the law day and night, fighting the lions and the bears, and now I can defeat the Goliaths. But for many of us, I wonder, where are we with our knowing God? Because if we don't know God, we're not going to be able to have anything to give thanks to God for with all our heart or recount or exalt and be glad or sing praises. I hear you. I feel you. And this is something that Adam Clark, the great Christian commentator, he said this. Here's a quote. Christians, 
so-called, when they meet, seldom speak about God. Why is this? Because they have nothing to say. I wonder if this is true about us. There's nothing going on with you and God because God has so little part of your life. David's like, no, God has a heavy part of my life. Apostle Paul says, God has every part of my life. But you know what? Here's the thing. I'm also challenged as I read Psalm 9 because I know that there have been times in my life, seasons in my life, where I just wanted nothing more than to hear God's voice, and it was scary. Where I wanted nothing more than to walk in like complete obedience. I'll tell you one time, back in, uh, earlier, I forgot what, what year it was, it was 2000, some, 2006, somewhere there. I was doing a church plant, and the church that I was partnered with, they asked me to go to Cambodia with them. And I was like, I don't want to go to Cambodia because I just thought of, some of you don't know, but the killing fields, you know, several million Cambodians were killed by their own people because of the Khmer Rouge. I thought about AK-47s. I was like, I don't want to go to Cambodia. But as I prayed, I just felt like I said, go. So I went. And then when I got to Cambodia, my task was to train the local pastors, the Cambodian indigenous pastors. And as I started to talk with them, I, I discovered that some of them took three days to get to this conference. So here I am, I'm speaking, I have four sessions. And on the last session, I'm just asking God, God, what do you want me to share with your leaders, with your, with your servants? And I hear God say, in my spirit, speak on healing. And I'm like, oh God, no, not healing, not healing, please. Because you know why, right? If you speak on healing, you have to heal. You can't just say, oh, God heals, God bless you, bye-bye. <laughs> you gotta heal. So I'm like, oh Lord. Okay, I'm just going to be obedient. And so I preach on healing. And then I say, all right, anybody want to receive healing, a prayer for healing? And this one man stands up, like he goes like this. And I'm like, oh, no, not that guy, please. This is the one guy who was like the darkest, like one of the older guys. And the whole time he's been looking at me like this. And I'm just like, why him? Why not someone friendly? But so he gets up and he starts walking to the front and he's limping. And I'm like, oh, God, not a limper. Lord, not a limper. Because if it's internal, how do you know if there's healed, right? If it's a headache, how do you know? But if it's limping, it's obvious. I'm like, oh God, why a limper? So he comes to the front, and I have a translator, and I ask him, what happened to him? And the guy begins to share. Oh, seven years ago, he climbed up on a ladder, went onto the roof, fell off, and ever since then, he hasn't been able to walk properly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? So I said, okay, just have a seat. And then I told my interpreter, do not translate what I'm saying. Don't translate what I'm saying. And so I start praying. I go, God, I just confess, honestly, I don't have faith. I don't have faith for this, but I'm doing it in obedience. Sometimes, things that God asks you to do, you don't have faith for it. You don't feel it, but you need to obey. If you want to see God's wonderful deeds, you have to obey. And so I just start praying, oh God, I, I don't have faith for it, I don't, but you told me to do it, so I'm praying in Jesus' name, be healed. So I'm like, I'm still closing my eyes, I don't want to look, I'm scared. So I ask the man to stand up, he stands up and he goes like this. And he starts walking back and forth without a limp, and I'm like, what in the world? I'm like surprised. And then of course, whoop, a line forms, right? People on prayer, which is great. So we're praying for people who couldn't hear out of one ear, they start to hear. People who couldn't see had a blurry thing, blurry thing gone. So doing it, and now my faith is like rising up. I'm like, yes, God, you are enthroned. You can do all things. And this one lady comes up and she's like, Ugh. So I asked the interpreter, what's happened? She said, for 10 years, she's had this stomach pain and she takes medicine every day. So I pray for her. First time, Feeling anything? She's like, ah, oh, it still hurts. Okay, second time, anything? No. Okay, one more time. Because sometimes Jesus prayed for people on multiple occasions, right? So one more time, feel anything? She's like, oh, no. So I go, okay, just sit down, sit down. So she sits down. 
Now, you think that's the end of it. At least I did. At the end of the, of the mission trip, we are going to stop by this one town in the jungle, one village. So we go there, and it, you know, this village has been cleared out to make room for a school. This is what the church did. They built a school for the kids there. And all these people were out there, like the governor, the chief of police, they're all there to say thank you. So as I'm walking in, this woman comes up to me, and she's smiling. She's like, and I'm like, hi. And she's like, she's like, act like she knows me. I'm like, oh, hi. And she's like, I'm like, huh? Oh, you're that lady that I prayed for. And I didn't see it happen there, but her pain's gone. It didn't happen right away, but sometime later on. But here was the thing that was so also awesome was because I, realized, I recognize this now. Even though I didn't have faith for that healing, that man had faith for that healing. Even though I was just acting in obedience, this man took three days to get to this conference and he is willing to get up here and receive prayer because he actually had faith that God could heal him. And what happened was the next day after he got healed, you know, we were talking with the pastors, he taps me on my shoulder, I look around and I'm like, what's going on? He points to this little girl, she looked like she was two or three years old and she's on her mom's shoulder and she's like you know, crying and she has like boogers coming in her nose, she has like this terrible fever, she's like, like this. So he's like, let's pray. I was like, okay, let's go pray. But you pray for her. So he's like, me? I'm like, yes, you. Pray for her. So he starts praying for her, okay? And then we just pray in Jesus' name. And I walk away, and we're talking. And completely honest, 15 minutes later, he taps me on the shoulder, and I turn around, he goes, look, and he points to the little girl, and she's completely healed, and she's running around, happy and joyful. And I realized, like, oh, gosh. How many things would I have missed out on God's wonderful deeds if I just wanted to stick with what is comfortable for me? See, God's showing his wonderful deeds is not just for you to be encouraged, but that you might be an encouragement and a strengthening to somebody else so that they could be an strengthening to somebody else as well. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God is working on your family or your coworkers or your friends? You see, he's working even before you get there. And he's just wondering, is anyone willing to be the key to unlock what I'm doing in their life already? You may very well be that person as you step out in faith, as you walk in obedience to be that person that God uses to unlock their salvation, to unlock their experience in God because you're willing to take a step of faith and not live in your comfort. Now here's the thing as I close. Some, some of us, uh, I hope the message that you hear from me is not, oh, if I step out in faith, I'm going to see the Red Sea part every day. I hope that's not what you're hearing from me. Rather, the challenge is, guys, where is our faith in Christ really? Where is our knowing Christ really? What is it really like? Let's just be honest. But at the same time, I want to encourage you with this. Even though you may not have seen a supernatural thing, maybe you never saw God heal somebody, even though you prayed for them. Maybe you've prayed for somebody who was deathly ill and they died. And so you didn't see a supernatural. Maybe you didn't see someone who was, you know, at the last wits in their finances and God all of a sudden miraculously provided some kind of financial provision. Maybe you didn't experience those supernatural things. But let me encourage you that today, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have believed that Jesus Christ has given his life for you, he is Lord and Savior, and you have put your faith in Christ, you have believed in the most wonderful deed of all. Because the author of life Jesus Christ. He emptied himself of his divine glory and he came down and he took on the form of flesh. He became like one of us. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. Healed the sick, cast out demons, did these mighty wonders and ultimately he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. And if you have put your faith in him and know that he is the resurrected Lord, then you know already the most wonderful, glorious, mighty deed of God that God came to be with us and to save us. 
You have already experienced it if you have really put your faith in Christ. And so therefore, you already have something to give thanks to the Lord with all your heart for. The greatest, mightiest, most wondrous deed of God. Christ coming for you and you believing in him. But brothers and sisters, I pray that it doesn't stop there. I pray that we're not just people that go, oh, I got a ticket to heaven. I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to live my life. Don't waste your life. Don't let me not waste my life. God wants to display his wondrous deeds in you and through you so that you might display it to others around you that they might also experience God in reality and be transformed. I pray that you and I, we will say yes. Because we know that we have a, a God who has not just died on the cross but rose again on the third day. And he is enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he is the one who's going to judge the wicked. He is the one who knows how to uphold us. Even no matter what we go through, we will never be forsaken by him. We have every reason to give thanks, to exalt, to recount, and to give praises to the Lord. Let's, let's go ahead and pray right now. So as we close, I want to just ask you guys a question once again. How many of you really want to experience God's wonderful deeds? And the follow-up question is, is, what are you willing to do? How close are you willing to get to Jesus? How desperately are you willing to seek him, to know his name?